You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Amen. If you're able to remain standing, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you need to sit down at any time during this reading or at any time during the service, please feel free to do so. I'm going to read from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Jesus is preaching. And he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said, verse 21, of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to, to, counsel, to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, You will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go go into hell. Verse 31 is also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, verse 33, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for that is the throne of God, or by earth, for that is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Verse 38, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's word. Please be seated. Nothing hard today, huh? Easy peasy. We are continuing in our study of the Gospel of Matthew this morning. And as we read, we are continuing in Jesus' own sermon on the mount. You'll remember Jesus began his most famous sermon by first describing the character of a Christian. This he explained in the, what we know now as, or what we call today as the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Christ began his sermon by describing the character of a Christian, the internal state of his people. And we discovered last week that the Beatitudes were not a prescription for how one can ascend the mount of salvation and earn the good graces of God. But instead, the Beatitudes are not a prescription, but a description of God's kingdom people who were already with Jesus on the mountain as he gave his sermon. The Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, is not the how to scale the Mount of Salvation. Instead, it is a description of God's kingdom people who are already with Jesus on the mountain. Well, then, following his description of Christian character, we listened as Jesus began describing the kind of influence that he wants his kingdom people to have in society. And he described that kingdom influence as salt and light. Salt, we discovered last week, and you probably already know this, exists in a lot of forms, but primarily to to fight back decay. It fights back. It's a preservative. So we are to be salt in society, to fight off the decay of sin and immorality and culture. And we are also to be light And of course, light is that beacon. It's that illumination in a dark world. Jesus says, you're the light of the world, a a city on a hill which cannot be hidden. And again, we noticed last week, or we noted last week, that the character described in the Beatitudes and our call to be salt and light are inextricably linked together. We must not pull these two things apart and we must not reverse the order. Character is always primary in the heart of God. Character before influence. If we try to get influence before character, our Christian witness falls apart. We lose our saltiness. We lose our lasting influence in culture. Character is always paramount in the heart of God. And so it's no surprise that Jesus begins his most famous sermon by describing Christian character. We must allow the character of the Christian described in the Beatitudes to flavor our right and good desire for moral preservation in culture. Now then, we are only 16 verses in. It's hard to believe. There's so much content. When you discover something brilliant, something that is truly genius, like the Sermon on the Mount, this sermon changed the world. This is brilliance. This is genius. When you discover something of this magnitude, you'll discover that it's simple enough to understand at its first reading. But then you read it again and it takes you down another layer of complexity and insight and nuance and another layer and another layer. And this sermon is so incredibly powerful and authoritative. And we're only 16 verses in. And we're already beginning to appreciate the divine weight of these words from Christ. And of course, we're not alone in appreciating the divine weight of these words. Whenever Jesus taught and wherever he taught, those who heard him were utterly astonished at his teaching. I shared this last week, but after Jesus was done preaching this sermon in Matthew, Matthew records that the crowds were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. 
they noticed when Jesus was speaking, he was speaking with otherworldly power and otherworldly authority. Do you notice that this morning? Do you feel the weight of his divine revelation in the Sermon on the Mount? But because Jesus taught with such authority and such power, it was common for his listeners to ask the question, is this a new teaching? Is this, is this new? As good first century Jews, they were asking the question, what about the law and the prophets? What about the law of Moses? Is Jesus contradicting the law with this new teaching? Is he undermining the teachings of Moses, or we might ask the question today, what is the relationship between the Old Testament and this gospel of the kingdom? What's the relationship? How do they fit together? Are they in contrary? Are they in contrast or in conflict rather? Or specifically, what is the relationship between the law and the gospel? Well, Jesus, knowing that these questions are burning in the minds of his first century audience, he turns his attention to exactly these topics this morning. And so first, if you're a note taker, Jesus shares his own relationship with the Old Testament or to the Old Testament. So point one is Jesus and the Old Testament. Jesus and the Old Testament. Point two, second, Jesus teaches us what true righteousness is, as opposed to a false righteousness. What is a true righteousness and what is a false righteousness? And third, finally, Jesus gives us his vision for the law of love. And that's where he concludes this portion of the sermon. Jesus gives us his vision for the law of love. Well, first, what is Jesus' relationship with the Old Testament? This is point one, Jesus in the Old Testament. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me again. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, in other words, not the smallest letter or the smallest punctuation in all of the Bible. Not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus, knowing that some in his audience were tempted to conclude that Jesus' teachings were in opposition to the law and the prophets. It's a, a way to summarize the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. He knew that some were tempted to conclude that Jesus' teaching were in opposition to the Old Testament. Jesus, knowing this, he makes it abundantly clear in verses 17 and 18 that he has not come to abolish the law, literally to tear it down, but instead he has come to fulfill it literally, to satisfy the law. Jesus wants to dispel for his hearers then and now that what he is teaching in the new covenant is at all in opposition to what was taught in the old. Instead, Jesus is highlighting the continuity between what was written in the Old Testament and the light that is dawning before their very eyes. Jesus wants to say, no, I am not bringing you a teaching that is contrary to the Old Testament. But what's more breathtaking than that, it is reassuring that Jesus, a first century rabbi, is not bringing a teaching that contradicts Moses. That's reassuring. But what's breathtaking is what Jesus says next. Not only is his teaching not in conflict with the Old Testament, but Jesus then claims that he has come to complete or fulfill the scriptures. It's hard to imagine a more stunning claim than this. Jesus is saying, Yes, I am a Jewish rabbi, and what I am saying is in, not in conflict with Moses or the prophets. But by the way, I, I am a Jewish rabbi, but I am also the one that all of your prophets were pointing to. 
I am the completion of the story. You can imagine at this moment his, his audience sort of gasping for air. You know, if somebody was taking a drink of water, you're, they're spitting it out. You come to fulfill, satisfy, complete the Old Testament? It's a stunning claim. These are the kinds of claims that earn Jesus a place on a Roman cross with a spear in his side and, and nails through his hands. Later, the Apostle Paul would echo the same sentiment, another staggering claim from the Apostle. He would say that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And that's why it is through Jesus that we utter our amen to God's glory. All, all, all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So that Sunday school answer, what was that about, kids? Jesus is right every time <laughs> because it is all about Jesus. He has come to be the very completion of the Old Testament. Now, the question remains for us, and boy, we're going to just skim the surface of this, but here is the question. In what ways did Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? In what ways does he satisfy all of the Old Testament? What a claim. Well, here's a few. If we take Paul at his word, and we certainly should, Jesus completes the law and the prophets by fulfilling all of their promises. The promise of Messiah. The promise of a king that would come and sit on David's throne, not just for a season, but forever. Jesus is saying, yes, I've satisfied that. Jesus is satisfying the longing to see the offspring of Abraham the son of man, the kinsman redeemer, the new Adam. Jesus is saying all of those things are fulfilled in my coming. Jesus is saying your longing for the prophet is here. I'm him. Your longing for the priest, the one who would mediate the better covenant, I'm him. Your desire for a king who would reign forever again in the throne of David is here. He is the prophet, the priest, the king. What a claim. Second, Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets by satisfying the righteous requirements of the law. He's not only the fulfillment of all those types and shadows of the new Adam, the kinsman redeemer, the offspring of Abraham. He's also satisfied the highest standards of the law imaginable. In Jesus' earthly life, he kept the law of God perfectly. Not just the Ten Commandments, not just the 613 commandments in the law, but Jesus, listen, Jesus obeyed every imperative, every command, every motivation of his heart, every intention of his will, every thought in his head, every word from his mouth, and every act from his hands was done perfectly. No shadow of sin, no questionable motivation, perfectly done. Altogether pleasing to the Father. You remember at his baptism, what his father said, this is my son in whom I am well, what? Pleased. He's pleased. Paul in Galatians says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Think about this. The creator of the law is born under the law. Then the author of Hebrews says that Christ was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus never sinned in thought. He never sinned in motive. He never sinned in deed. And therefore, he becomes the only human on planet Earth who has ever earned a right standing before God. Think about that. We don't think about that often enough. 
We think about the substitutionary atonement of God, which is glorious, but we don't often think about Jesus' right, his earning of a right standing before God. He's the only human who has ever earned a right standing before God. Tim Keller is famous for saying this, and I remember hearing this and being so relieved. But he said, if we ever wait, if we wait for a pure motive to do anything, we'll never do anything as human beings. If we wait for that pure motive to do something, we'll never do anything. Why? Because our motives are always intertwined with sin and agenda and fallenness. But not so with Christ. Perfect motivations. Perfect posture of heart. Perfect obedience to the law. So then Jesus fulfills the law by achieving its perfect demands. But finally, third, and perhaps the most surprising, Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets by doing away with the sacrificial system altogether. By Jesus becoming the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, he not only satisfies its righteous requirements, but in his own body pays the penalty for those who can't. This is the most staggering claim of Christianity. In fact, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll have this on the screen, but I want you to see it in black and white if you have your Bibles in front of you. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, verse 1, the author of Hebrews says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, that law, that shadow, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The author of Hebrews is saying, Shadows cannot make you perfect. They cannot come through. They are a shadow to a substance. There is a reality that comes after the shadow. Look for the reality. Look for the reality. Verse 2, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a, remainder, a reminder rather, of sins every year. 4, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, verse 7, behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8, when he said above, you neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Verse 9, then he said, behold, we have, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, that is the shadow, in order to establish the second. Verse 10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Not only does Jesus satisfy the righteous requirements of the law, but he goes even further and he satisfies the penalty for those who cannot do what he did, which, by the way, is every human being other than Jesus. And he did it once for all. Those three words, I shared this with the prayer group this morning. Those three words answer the question, are we going to do this whole thing again after the resurrection? My kids have asked that really good question at devotions or family worship. When this is all said and done, when God creates new heavens and new earth, we die and we're raised, are we going to sin again? And is God going to have to do this whole thing again? And is Jesus going to have to die again? Those three words answer that question. And the answer is no. We won't have to go through this all over again. Why? Because Jesus died once for 
all. That means the blood of Christ covers us not for a season, not for a year, not for 1,000 years, not for 1 million years, but for eternity, Christ's blood satisfies the wrath of God and the righteous requirements of the law. That is glorious news for those of us who are cynical about our human nature. Once for all. No need. He satisfies. How does Jesus satisfy the law and the prophets? He satisfies the sacrificial system in the temple. No more. No more need for bulls and goats. For the Lamb of God has died in the place of sinners. He takes our sin and we get his righteousness. So again, Jesus says, don't think for a moment that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to satisfy them in my righteous life and in my atoning death. So that's the relationship, partial. There's a lot more that could be said there. The relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament. Let's move forward now. Point two, Jesus teaches us now about true righteousness. Vitally important. Look at verses 19 and following. Therefore, Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, another moment where a a shock comes over the, the crowd. Someone spits up their kombucha or whatever they're drinking in the first century. Probably not kombucha, maybe. Water. What, what is, what do you, unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus, do you know what you're saying? Have you seen these guys? Have you seen their giant phylacteries on their their heads? Have you seen them praying in front of the temple? Do you know they tithe of all that they have? Have you seen the scribes and the Pharisees, how much they give to the synagogues? How How early they wake in the morning to pray? Do you know what you're asking of us, Jesus? Unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Their whole lives revolve around keeping the law. I've said this before, but this is like telling a young Dylan in sophomore in high school, unless your basketball skills exceed that of Michael Jordan and Larry Bird, you'll have no place in the NBA, right? Just like telling a little scrawny white kid in the desert that unless your skills exceed that of the best ever, you have no chance of entering in, right? I would hang up my shoes and probably pay more attention in class if if I heard that. These, these were the rock stars. These were the superstars of religion. The scribes and the Pharisees. The, the scribes were the PhDs. And he's telling this to a bunch of GEDs, fishermen. They don't, even, they don't even have higher education. What are we to do with this? How can we compete? What is Jesus saying? Well, first of all, listen. First, Jesus is affirming the continued use of the moral law in the life of a Christian. Jesus denies this idea that still floats around in the church today. Jesus denies this idea that the law of God ceases to be relevant in the life of a new covenant believer. Instead, God's people then and now are to be a people who love the law of God and seek to obey its commandments. We are to be a holy people. But again, Jesus throws a wrench into this whole thing and he says, 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, it goes beyond them. You will never, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So first, Jesus is affirming the moral use of the law and the life of the Christian. The law of God is good. It comes from the heart of God. It comes from good and it is for good. But then Jesus takes it to this whole new level. And so how do we understand this? First, to understand what Jesus is saying, we have to understand the kind of righteousness he believed was being practiced by the scribes and the Pharisees. Listen to Jesus now. I'm going to have these verses on the screen in Matthew 23. This is the kind of righteous righteousness that the Pharisees and the scribes were practicing. Is it not on the screen? We don't have it. Oh, we do. Sorry. L- listen to this. It's very important. This is what Jesus is drilling into. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, mask wearers. That's what hypocrite means. You're a mask wearer. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. What am I, like one of the few times that we know that Jesus had a sense of humor. In Aramaic, that rhymes. Gnat and camel rhyme. It's like if Jesus said, you strain at a mouse, but you swallow a house. Same thing. You strain at a gnat because you don't want to touch a dead thing. But you'll swallow a camel, you hypocrites. It probably would have got a chuckle and then a, ooh. (laughs) Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you, here it is, here's the kind of righteousness that Jesus is rebuking. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate and that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 27, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear, here it is, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Do you hear what Jesus is rebuking? It's a form of righteousness that is in appearance only, but inside is a direct contradiction to how you're appearing on the outside. So then as as another author writes, Christian righteousness, listen, Christian righteousness is greater than that of the Pharisaic righteousness because it's deeper righteousness. It's a righteousness of the heart. Blessed are the pure in what? Pure in spirit. I was going for heart, but that's okay. Blessed are the pure of heart for they will see God. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the pure in mere conduct. You just didn't kill someone. You'll see God. No, 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 no. A righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees is a higher righteousness because it goes deeper. And here's the truth. You and I both know this. You can fool people all day long with your behavior and your words. But it's a fool's errand. It's a fool's errand because we're not fooling God. We're not fooling this Christ. And one day we will meet him. We will stand before him. And what will we have to put before him? Our pretension? Our outward conformity? I went to Roots Community Church every week. I followed along. Or will we have a righteousness that's born from the heart? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The scribes, the Pharisees, they obtained an appearance of righteousness. 
They didn't have the righteousness of the heart. But of course, a heart-level righteousness requires a new heart, doesn't it? If I cannot perform my way up the mountain, I need a gift. I need a heart transplant. I need a resurrection of the inside of my heart. I need need God to move miraculously into my own self where I can't see and I can't do. And this new birth can only be brought about by the gracious mercy of God in Christ. And this is the point that Christ is making. External obedience to the law was never intended to be the basis of someone's salvation. Never. Salvation only comes by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Father Abraham, before he was given the command of circumcision, was saved. He was justified by faith. Paul says to the Galatians, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. So the law of God is good. It comes from love. It is for love. But if you misuse it, if you try to use God's love to gain, or God's law to gain his love, it'll crush you to powder. It will not be earned. It'll only be given. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Briefly now, what is the relationship between the Christian and the law? Christ has satisfied the law's burden of perfection. He has gifted us his perfect record of obedience. And now we obey the law, not out of fear of condemnation, but we obey God now out of worship and adoration. The law is not our basis for righteousness. Christ is our basis for righteousness. And because we are in Christ, the law of God is our delight. So this is true righteousness as opposed to a false righteousness. Well, third, our final movement in Jesus' sermon, Jesus now gives us his vision for the law of love. This is where we'll conclude this morning. In verses 21 to 48, Jesus gives us six examples of what he means by a heart-level true righteousness. He gives us six examples of what he means. As another writes, in each of these examples, Jesus rejects the scribal traditions. See, the the scribes and and the Pharisees, they would write commentaries on the law. And these commentaries were existed to help serve God's people, to help them keep the law. But they elevated these commentaries above the law. So that loyalty to the Mishnah and the Talmud and these sort of scribal traditions became more important than the law itself. And so here in in this section of Jesus' sermon, he is rejecting these scribal traditions, these commentaries that have become so big in the hearts and minds of the Jewish audience, his Jewish audience. And And he's coming to give them and he's reaffirming the authority of the Old Testament principle. In other words, Jesus is not giving them new laws, but he's giving them the law as it was intended, scrubbed from all of its human fingerprints, the law of God which is to be observed not only in external behavior, but also from the heart. But notice again, another sort of spit out your water moment in this sermon. Notice with me what Jesus doesn't say in these verses. He doesn't say in these verses, you have heard it said, but thus saith the Lord. He doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say, you have heard it said, but the scriptures actually teach this. He doesn't say that. That's what you would expect a first century rabbi to say. But instead, what does Jesus say? You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say 
to you. Jesus doesn't appeal to a higher authority as he gives his authority or as he gives his commentary on the law. Why? Because he's the author of it. There's no higher authority. He wrote it. It came from his heart. So Jesus is unlike any other teacher. All of us, I should say, Hans, Alec, anybody who preaches, it's thus saith the Lord, the scriptures. We stand when the scriptures are read, not when I'm teaching, right? This is God's word. You know what Jesus would say after the reading of God's word? He would say, this is my word. And we'd say, thanks be to God. You have heard it said, but I say to you, no higher authority to appeal to than his own. It's his law. Look at verse 21 and following. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, verse 22, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Is anybody guilty this morning? Yep, I got one hand. One honest person. <laughs> Listen, Jesus is moving. He is moving the law from mere external conformity to its intended place, the heart of man. Jesus is saying in this example, and there are five others, that murder begins well before you pull the trigger or draw a knife. Murder begins before you pull the trigger or draw a knife. Instead, murder plots in the secret corners of one's heart. Murder begins when we malign people with words that are unfitting of an image bearer of God. Take it very seriously. Look it right at me. Take it very seriously when somebody maligns other human beings with their words. When they give them animal attributes. When they call them foolish or other, other non-human language. Take that very seriously. They're revealing something that's going on in their hearts. We talked about Nazi Germany last week. Before Hitler could prepare his people to kill other human beings, six million Jews, he had to have a propaganda platform of words. Words. You fool, you racha, you rat. They are rats. He had to fill their hearts and brains with words that were unbefitting of an image bearer of God before they could ever enter them into the gas chambers before we could ever do civil war in this young country, where brother would fight against brother, you know what they would have to do? They would have to give each other names that were unbefitting of a human being. They're scum. They're evil, pure evil. They're rats. Words are very serious. And Jesus here is moving the law from Mere external, yes, it is wrong to kill someone, but don't you know murder begins in the heart? Repent of that first, and then your actions will follow. Now, time doesn't permit us to delve into each of these six examples that Jesus gives, but something very interesting emerges as you look at how each of these six examples relate. This is new to me. Jesus could have used any examples of the law he wanted. He had 613 written down commandments that he could have chose. But he chose these six, and he chose them intentionally. And the question is why? Why? Why did he choose these six? He chose these laws because each of these laws are relational in nature. They're relational. Murder, adultery, marriage, keeping your word, keeping your oaths, retaliation against someone who does, your harm, does you harm, love of neighbor, 
all of these laws are relational. They relate to other human beings. So why is Jesus so interested in these laws that have to do with our treatment of others? One word, love. Love. What is burning at the heart of Jesus' ministry? Love. Why does Jesus choose these six relational laws to tease out his examples of true righteousness? Love. When Jesus' critics ask, ask him to summarize the law and the prophets, do you know what he says? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then you, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, what is the law about? It's about love. Love for God and love for others. What's burning at the heart of, of your life and ministry, Jesus? Love. What's the purpose of the law? Love. Calling someone a fool in your heart, moving against an enemy, transgressing the safety of your covenant, all of it busts through what love is supposed to be. And love is not mere actions. It is that. It's not mere actions. It's the posture of the heart. Love is comprehensive. Love is a whole human experience. shall love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. The law of God was given from love. God is love. Love is not just something that God does. It's something that he is. It's a part of his very nature. And his law comes from him. So law comes from love and it is given for love. And Jesus, listen, as we close, Jesus is sick to his stomach He's sick to his stomach as he watches the scribes and the Pharisees use the law in the exact opposite way it was intended. The Pharisees were not using the law to love and to serve others. They were using the law to love and serve themselves. They were using the law to exercise power over people. And beloved, this is not a first century problem. This is a human problem. This problem exists and happens in the church. When we use the good commands of God and we use them as leverage over people to exercise power and authority over people, when we do that, we are not partnering with Christ. We are partnering with the Pharisees who are using the law in the exact opposite way it was intended they were abusing the law and they were abusing others with the law. And so Jesus says, not so among my kingdom people. This is not how my kingdom people are to be. My kingdom people, when they're slapped on one side of the face, you give them the other. Hyperbole? I don't know. When my kingdom people are called to love, they, were, they will be, my kingdom people will be so intoxicated with the love of God that they could even love their enemies and pray for those who want to kill them. Hyperbole? I don't think so. My kingdom people are so enamored with God and pleasing him from the heart because he has first loved them, that they take sin so seriously that they would cut their hands off and gouge their eyes out. Yes, hyperbole. But the metaphor sticks, doesn't it? To be so radical with sin. To not play games with fire. My kingdom people are not frauds and fakes like the Pharisees who dress up in masks. 
they are made righteous by the Lord and their obedience to the law comes from the heart. So where are you this morning? Are you on the mountain or are you in the crowd? Are you sitting at the feet of Jesus trusting what he is saying? Or are are you trying to claw your way up the mountain through mere external obedience to the law? Jesus says something at the end. Look at verse 48. He says, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. I think Jesus is saying two things in this final statement. Number one, your righteousness Your ability to get it extends beyond your ability to get it. You cannot earn this righteousness. It has to be gifted. His life for yours. His perfect obedience for your sin. You must be perfect, holy. That positional righteousness can only be given So stop trying to claw your way up the mountain. Release. And turn your palms this way. That's the first thing it means. I think the second thing it means is you must be complete. A whole person. Inside and out. Not like the hypocrites. Not like those who pretend to do religion. I don't want to do that. Do you want to? I'm done pretending. You therefore must be perfect, complete, whole, as your Father in heaven is perfect and complete. May God grant a hunger and a thirst for true righteousness that can only come from a pure heart made clean by the blood of the Lamb. And may the law of love govern our hearts for the witness of Christ and the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for sending your Son for wretched sinners like us. Apart from you, Jesus, we have no hope. Apart from you, Jesus, there is no hope, but we are not apart from you, and therefore we glory in you. Grant us these truths that we might believe in them and live into them, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.